Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. everyone and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts Mark and Kim and we are here this week with a very special guest. We are here with Jerry Eisterhold from Terravox Wine and he is joining us from Missouri. Should we pronounce it Missouri or Missouri? You're the native so you would know. Well the rule is that if you pronounce it Missouri you're not destined never to leave it so I prefer Missouri because I like to travel around. <laughs> Okay. So joining us all the way from Missouri to talk about wine grapes that are being grown in the area, wines being made in his area, and heritage grapes. So wines that are native to the United States and that are producing some very interesting, fascinating wines, lots of history behind it. So uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Where would you like me to begin? It's a, it's a very long story, literally. <laughs> it's a great story. I was researching a lot. I, and then I all these articles have been popping up, I've been seeing promoting Missouri wine. And to me, this was mind blowing. That's something Kim and I are always looking for things going on in the wine world. And we've never discussed this with our listeners. And you are the guy to uh, tell our listeners the story, the history. Well, I'll try to uh, maybe bring them along on a little bit of the journey of discovery that uh, we are have embarked on and are still embarked on. In my day job, I say I do museums. And uh, in that work, you do uh, spend a lot of time in old archives and bookstores, etc. And uh, I think it's sometime back in 1987 or thereabouts, we were working on a project up at Boystown, Nebraska, and uh, came across this book in a, in a used bookstore, one of these places that's a block long with, you know, the, the floors were sagging because of all the dusty old volumes there and just uh, picked up a bar in a book written by one Thomas Volney Munson, who had put together the 1893 exhibit at the Columbia Exposition in uh, Chicago. And he'd been uh, commissioned to put together the USDA exhibit on grapes and apples. Out of that came this book in which he described 31 genuses of grapes that grew on the planet. Now we know there are more because discovery has happened in the last 150 years. And in that, he also described he was breeding grapes, thousands of them, and selling hundreds of them commercially, is credited with promoting the uh, solution to the phylloxera epidemic, which is a whole other story we can digress into. And then uh, in it, he would describe in this florid Victorian language, what a wonderful wine or a table grape this would be. And I just was curious about what exactly that meant. Being from Missouri, the show me state, it's like, well, you say so, but what does that really mean? So that led to a, um, oh, it's not as though this whole thing started out with a business plan, because if you, um, actually, one of the lessons I try to convey to young audiences that um, maybe sometimes you shouldn't plan, because if you did, you would never do what I did. It just began out of a curiosity and sort of following the story where it led. I mean, we're, we're calling this uh, Tarot Box, which is sort of the voice of the land, because I wanted to see what these grapes had to say. And they were all bred from the stuff that's native to this area. One of the things I learned was that Missouri being on the border of the woodlands and the prairies and the Ozark Highlands and the Mississippi Delta, there's a lot of ecozones that overlap there. And we therefore have more genetic diversity than any other state in grapes, freshwater fishes, and songbirds. So there's all this stuff that he was working with. And if you think of it, the stuff you see in the, in the liquor store is 
pretty much all Vinta Savonifera. There's a little bit of Labrusca around, which is Concord and Welch's grape juice and stuff like that. And everyone assumes that that's what American wine is all about. So it, it sort of, um, I don't know, piqued the, the stubborn missionary urge in me to educate people that there's a whole lot more to the story than just what everyone's familiar with. Because if you think about it, I mean, if, if you imagine your liquor store full of Vinifera, there should be a dozen other liquor stores that are all full of this other stuff that no one uh has any idea what these grapes are about or what they can do. So that led to, um, oh, about a 12 or 16 year effort of tracking down these things because they're not really available for the most part in nurseries. You get a cutting from here and a cutting from there and you have to propagate that and it takes a while to fill in. And initially it was just 12 plants of each of the varieties that we tracked down about 60 of them. Actually, there were 67 that we started with. Now, um, another aspect of sort of not thinking ahead is is if you do the math on that, the vintages were ridiculously small and the amount of labor that you put into, you know, 10 gallons of wine is the same that you would put into a vat. So it's a, you know, highly uh, unsustainable. We're trying to get to sustainability by working towards identifying say, a dozen or so of these, you know, that have a appeal, that are productive, that we can sort of sustain a pipeline while at the same time, you know, still kind of exploring the, the basic diversity issue. You know, we, we're trying to get down to about 40, trying to get down to about 20 that we can manage. And then I found a guy uh, named Cliff Ambers out of Virginia that was also been breeding grapes since uh, since the 1800s. And uh, now we got 25 more to work with. And eventually we'll tap that down to something that is close to manageable. And um, at the same time, if you think about this also, Cabernet, Pinot, people have been working that for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And they have a sense of what typicity is for oh, Chardonnay, Zinfandel, you name it. These grapes do not. So they're there's a lot of literally writing the book and figuring out how to treat these grapes and how to grow them, the canopy regime, uh, uh, fermentation, the, the whole ball of wax. Were you in the wine business, Jerry, when you discovered the book? And, or were you a hobbyist? How did you... It was before you had the winery, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, well, being born German in the mid-Missouri, uh, it was sort of mandatory that you would at least make wine out of something. And at the time, it was like blackberries and wild grapes and things like that. Uh, so wine, a little bit of beer? that. Nah, yeah. not not. We we were uh, we were um, this may be more than your audience cares to know, but we th this is a um, an immigration group that brought people over uh, in the 1830s. Now, this is before the, the 1848 revolution where most Germans came across, but mm -hmm. these were all German Catholics. There were two dozen communities in okay. Missouri. And my father, who was, what, fourth generation in this country, did not learn English until he was 42 and met my mother and wanted to talk to her. So wow. this was only isolated, insular, mm -hmm. uh, full of transcendental, uh, whatever. So uh, you know, we're we're kind of in our own little world. Interesting. Yeah. And for our listeners, there's a whole there's a bunch of history online about how the German population went to Missouri and didn't they get land specifically to grow? Wasn't that part of the deal? They would get land if they grew great? Well, that part of the story is Cincinnati, where um, uh, Nicholas Longworth, uh, at one point, see, the, the largest wine-producing state in the country has sort of drifted westward from New Jersey, around East Egg, to Cincinnati, where there is a single winemaker, Nicholas Longworth. He had defended a couple of harsh thieves, traded that for a couple of stills that he traded for 33 acres that became downtown Cincinnati. <sighs> 
So he became the second largest property tax payer behind John Jacob Astor. Uh, but he had this huge winery and he would indenture Germans to come over. And if they would plant six or seven acres of Catawba, you know, that was that. And he had the, literally the largest winery in the country at the time. The Missouri group actually came over initially to farm a free German state like in the middle of the country, because why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and they are the ones that landed in around Herman, Missouri, and we upstream the, on the Gasconade River from that. I just want to ask Jerry about the book, the Munson book, because after I got a copy of it, there's so much data in there. And then you said you went through and you, you had to narrow down what you could grow and what produced good wine. Are you at the point now understanding what is best for your location and your your terroir there? Uh, we're, we're getting there. Yeah, I mean, we we are uh, we're doubling our acreage because, like I said, in order to like even have a reasonable supply chain, you would need to at least get up to the point where we're making a barrel or a pallet of whatever it is. In terms of the terroir, I think you were asking about one of the um, uh, the bits of history is that I um, as I tell people, it's uh, you know it's unseemly to boast, but uh, if I didn't, nobody would know or care. It was once the uh, third best soil judger in the Big Eight because I went to agronomy school. That was my first foray to college. And um, working in the soil lab in at the University of Missouri, I kind of knew the soils of Missouri, of some of the soils of Missouri, but particularly this part of the world. So when it came time to look for land, it was my wife's idea to rent a plane and look around for land that had the was the soil type that I wanted. Uh, that was close enough where she could do her commute into the city and keep her job. So we uh, we found a, the spot and uh, she did a test drive. And I think we are about 300 feet inside the boundary of uh, what she would suffer as a commute. <laughs> um, now, but the soil is low. Uh, it's a, it's a wind deposit. It's it's um, the uh, the part the soil particle particles are of a uniform size. It's very deep. It's very mineral rich, but not a lot of organic matter. So we don't have a lot of vegetative growth, but we have all the um, all the minerals pretty much that you'd want. And we are uh, like one bluff over from the Missouri River, so we have a good water table and. And if you, any of you who uh, suffered through the 2012 drought in these parts of the world, uh, we didn't have to turn on the irrigation system at all because the roots had, you know, found the water table and we were just fine. Sounds like a perfect place to grow grapes. It's certainly a place to grow grapes. I'm sure there's in Italy that would be just as good, but, it's a, but we're not in Italy. Is your area uh, in an AVA area in Missouri? No, no. Are you looking to create one for your area? Or? Uh, ironically, I think there's a Los Hills uh, AVA up in Iowa, but we certainly could. If you look at the uh, climate maps, there's a little bump around where we are, and it was once called Little Dixie because uh, we are the uh, it's the westernmost place where tobacco is grown. So it's a little bit anomalous in, in terms of sort of where you would figure we would be in the latitude. But as far as uh, doing the AVA thing, I quite Frankly, I have enough projects on my plate, so uh, I will leave that to somebody else if they have the energy to pursue that. When you were going through the process of deciding which grape varieties to keep and which ones to sort of jettison, what was your thinking in that process? Was it more about flavor of the final wine? Was it more about survivability of the plant? What were your parameters for this is going to kind of make the cut and and these are the ones that we're going to kind of stick with? Well, they're all bred from stuff that is native to this area. So survivability is not really an issue at all because they wouldn't, well, a lot of these I found in the, uh, in Munson's old vineyard down in Denison, Texas. Uh-huh. And 
had been basically abandoned for, I don't know, 80 years. And so you figure anything that is still around and survived after all that time deserved to live and deserved to live in this part of the world. So that wasn't a threshold. The, the threshold condition was really which of them are productive and which of them did not have, because he was breeding with a lot of varietals, including a little bit of Labrusca. And if it had some too much of that in it, uh, it that was a no-no because that's just not the missionary message that we were trying to put out there that these grapes are not that's kind of you know wet dog flavor that you get from uh, from a Concord. So that was threshold number one. And then the next cut is of course what makes a good wine. And now we probably will get a little more refined in terms of just productivity. There are some that are really great, but the you know the bunches are incredibly small and the amount of labor that goes into it mm-hmm. is at some point you just have I have to figure that at some point this needs to become economically sustainable. And that's one of the metrics is just how much labor it takes to train some of these. Some of these are, um, oh, I don't know, there's one variety uh, called Watumka that is a very, very kind of droopy vine. So it takes a lot of canopy tying up just to like get the air circulation going and it will shatter. Uh, really, you have uh, about, I don't know, three or four days to harvest when it's ripe. You got to get out there. Oh. But when it's ripe, the whole world smells of elder- elderberry flowers and uh, oh. it not only makes really good white wine, but there's a white port that we make out of it that is just full of lemon verbena and just all just weird flavors that you don't expect to come out of a bottle. So um, in fact, we made a um, kind of a sherry out of it that almost tastes like single malt scotch. So these, these are... <laughs> Some of the stuff is just crazy. How much are you producing, Jerry? Uh, we got about two thousand cases last year. And what's but, your, you know, what's your goal? Like, uh, uh, have you set a goal? Like, you want to no more than five thousand cases, no more than? Do you have a goal? Yeah, I mean, there are sweet spots where you have to kind of you know balance the production, production, and the staffing, and the market, and all that. So right now, as I said, we're doubling our acreage, uh, which is a five-year process because you know we can't just go to the nursery and buy these grains uh, vines it takes uh, we have to propagate everything our own self so that's a four or five year process and at that point when we get that up and running i hope to be up to four thousand maybe five thousand in a good year and for our listeners who want to see how jerry does all that you can go on their youtube channel and jerry has some really educational videos of how he's producing all this at his winery uh, i really enjoyed the youtube uh, videos jerry good information You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Today, we have a very special guest from Terra Vox Vineyards. It's Mr. Jerry Eisterhold, and we're talking about his winery in Missouri. If you want to get more information about his wines, you go to terravox.wine. For more information about Kim, you can go to commonwealthwineschool.com. For more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. You can find us here every week on Franklin Radio 102.9, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. We're having a great conversation with Jerry of Terravox Vineyards and all about Missouri wines. And I thought, Jerry, the history a Missouri wine. I, this was something, I mean, Kiv and I study a lot of wine. I think if people don't study American wine or the history, they don't understand that Missouri was number two in the 
in 1860s, right? In production, it was it was one of the big guys in the in the wine world. It was, and for a while, I think it was uh, number one. And uh, part of the history is, I mean, this was in a way it was uh, sort of like the Silicon Valley of uh, global viticulture. The uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Phylloxera epidemic, the cause of that was nailed down by Charles Valentine Riley, who was the Missouri State entomologist working with uh, Emile Planchon out of Montpellier. And uh, for that, he was given the uh, Legion of Honor. Uh, by the grateful French nation at the same time he was being defunded by the um, by the Missouri legislature but you know that's uh, just too bad um but there were uh, a lot of other people that were breeding grape uh, one of them uh, Jacob Rommel uh, brought Norton to Missouri but he also created the Elvira grape which is what is still planted in the Azores he is parenthetically buried in Osage County where where I'm from uh there's others called uh, oh uh, uh, Friedrich Munch Munson bred grapes and named them after his buddies. There was Bailey, there's Bell, there's Munch, uh, Rommel, Hussman. Hussman was uh, a provost at the University of Missouri. He unsuccessfully tried to uh, to lobby Elizabeth Cady Stanton to uh, take wine off of the uh, the Volstead Act, but that didn't work. <laughs> he bad. also decamped. California and basically started the systemic uh, sort of viticultural training out there that became UC Davis. So these were, you know, figures that were all had the long view of grape culture. And, uh, you know, Munson also had a theory of a sort of dynamic agriculture that our relationship with the, uh, the planted environment is a dynamic thing that requires constant investigation. And in a way, I'm trying to maintain that, that uh, tradition. So Missouri saved the wines in the world. I was watching a documentary. A gentleman was in a vineyard in France and he said, where are these rootstocks from out here? And he said, Missouri. And then he was in the winery, he saw the oak barrels. He says, where is your oak barrels from? And he said, it's Missouri. <laughs> Do you use Missouri oak? Uh, yeah, of course. Although I will say for the most part, if we get a new barrel, we sort of leach it out with soda ash because most of these grapes have enough uh, tannin, et cetera, where we don't really need to impart a lot through the barrel itself. Are there any similarities or can you give a, a little bit of an explanation of the character of the wines that these grapes produce? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners have never experienced these wines before, even though in Massachusetts, we do get a few wines from other states uh, and we do produce some of our own um, native grapes, it's it's kind of hard to get our hands on some of these varieties that are native to the United States and that really don't have this big production. So is there anything that you can say to kind of describe what the characteristics of these wines are? Well, you know, that's a debate we have. We either have to say, oh, these aren't like anything you've had, or we have to say, well, these are kind of like this or that, the other thing. So uh, we were we just had a debate yesterday of uh, Clark Smith, who's one of our winemaking uh, consultancy, uh, who, who taught us classes at UC Davis. He had this uh, sort of flavor matrix of where he, he had plugged all the um, uh, vinifera grapes onto mm -hmm. it. So he, here's tannin and here's a uh, uh, well, darkness, I guess. And uh, so he had plotted Zinfandel and Cabernet and Pinot and the usual suspects and trying to map these grapes sort of onto that because, yeah, there's a gradient of tannin, there's a gradient of uh, oh, alcohol, there's a gradient of, um, of, of sort of structure and density. Mm -hmm. So I guess, but I mean, they're really all over the map. And, yeah. and as I said, we're trying to figure out what, what's in them. You know, there's one called Cloita that we can kind of make into 
is sort of a quasi Merlot because it does have some coffee and chocolate flavors, etc. Lenore that I think we're going to try later is uh, uh, it's it's one of the denser wines we have. If you don't treat it right and you don't and you aren't careful about it, uh, you can get some really oh I don't know odd pencil shaving almost plastic flavors in it. Mm. And there's um, some of these grapes have sort of cinnamon notes. Like I said, the Watomka can have lemon verbena in it. It's uh, just um, it's a lot of fun actually to play around with these things and try to come up with the adjectives and the descriptors. And one thing that hardly anybody ever says though is that you know these really taste like grapes. <laughs> we had an interesting part on your website talking about not just the history behind these grape varieties because obviously they've been around for a long time, but it's almost like we don't have a whole lot of institutional knowledge about how to treat these grapes. So uh, you had mentioned before, you know, in Europe they've been growing whatever for hundreds or not if not thousands of years, and it's almost like you're starting back over from square one and have to learn all about these grape varieties that we yeah, just don't I'll, know I'll much about. Do a second that the the, the aforementioned George Hussman though, um, who was a very you know organized and scholarly and systemic guy, he wrote books about it, and I did find one of his books at a used bookstore in Los Angeles, and uh, that's the book that I used to sort of figure out how to plant and at least start the vineyard that we have. So oh, there's not a lot of templates uh, now, but you know I am I, um, I don't know I, I'm just rambling here, but it's it's kind of an internal debate. Like, do we call these things heroin? or heritage grapes because I was going to ask about old. that. Well, I, you know, we're, I, we're debating, but I think we're going to stop because it has the implication of mustiness or, uh, I don't know, or irrelevance. But man, I mean, it's just that there's this, it's like a lost city. These grapes are still interesting and vibrant, and we still don't know really everything that they have to say. And for our listeners, if you go to terravox.wine, Jerry's website, as Kim was saying, has some great information. All the grapes are listed. You can click on each grape and get the origins of the grape. And Kim and I would have mentioned cinnamon. I'm getting that in this wine. Are you getting that, Kim? Like a cinnamon, almost like a potpourri type aroma going on. I get a lot of floral notes in it. It's definitely opened up since we uh, since we opened the bottle. And I must say, one of the notes on the back of the bottle, I was blown away, Jerry, is the 24 cases of this wine. <laughs> Like, and you're selling it right to, to people. I, it just blows my mind that I can get one bottle of you're making what this, what's that, 280 something bottles, right? And we have one here. Yeah, so that, that's a visible percentage of the entire production, which is why I can hardly. <laughs> Or to drink any of my own wine because uh, every <laughs> bottle has a missionary job to do. We had one variety called Marguerite, which is probably going to have to go on the chopping block. And it's, I mean, makes a really interesting wine, but we had like seven bottles. So we we joke about it being like a $700 bottle of wine. Not that anybody will pay for it, but that's probably about what it cost. Yeah. And to get this shipped to Massachusetts, it was like, you know, 40 bucks and <laughs> just like phenomenal value. Can you explain the Terravox, the name in the in the logo, because Kim and I were talking about your logo. It kind of looks like is it sound waves, the logo? Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of a, a double entendre of sound waves and vineyard rows and the landscape. Ah. So trying to be clever, but also something that I hope will be timeless and can uh, you know last for a while. And Terravox means voice of the land. Is that something 
you found yeah it's uh it's supposed to be vox terror if you want to be grammatically correct but that just doesn't sound right plus i like that little ligature the a and the v so and you know driving through the accountant to to register i had to come up with something so that's what i came up with (laughs) and for wine label geeks that kim and i are it's produced and bottled by you which means you grow and make and bottle right on your winery site we love that and you use all your own estate grapes and you don't buy in any other grapes it's all the stuff that you've got your hands on well who the heck would we buy it from? yeah (laughs) i was gonna say that (laughs) who's gonna buy them from do you expect that there will be others in your area in the future that try to do vineyards or try to learn from you and expand your wine growing area uh, well, that's one of the, I mean, cause I, this is way too much work to just <laughs> to crank out a couple of thousand bottles of wine and then call it a day. So yeah, no, we're, just I, you and your staff. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, besides there's just, there's the general philosophy of just diversity and trying new things and exploration and all of that, that we're trying to encourage as well as people become aware of this. And, um, you know, we, we are also very careful to make sure that the wines we put out there have, uh, are good ambassadors for this project Mm -hmm. because I mean the wine's pretty good because a hell of a lot of it has gone down the drain I mean you know we can't afford to um, to let uh, I don't know what you say the you know the economic impulse control what goes out the door and what doesn't go out the door yeah, you yep, still need yep, to yep. produce a product that people are going to be happy with. Yep, but we've had, um, oh, no, we've been contacted by people from South Africa. People, there's a French filmmaker that came over and did a bit, and act, a couple of these older uh, wines, uh, Lenore being one, Herbamont being another, uh, Clinton Ives uh, being a couple, and Elvira were once extensively planted in Europe. And um, there's a movement uh, to try to get the DOC regulations lifted a little bit so that they can start to work with some of these vines because there are still pockets that are planted hither and yon in various places that you're they're not allowed to make the wines commercially but they love the grapes in fact there's a historical uh, society in the savan that we visited that had a 140 year old vineyard of this uh, lenore and they see great value in the potential for in, including these things in their breeding programs because there's you know there's disease resistance because these wines are by nature where they have evolved and uh, in, inherently more disease resistant than vinifera and um, there's uh, considerations of climate change which uh, as I say because we live in a red state we don't have that here but some people are concerned about it. Jerry I had to ask you Recently, I saw an article that was in uh, Vine Pier, and it was uh, titled, What's Your Favorite American Wine? And they were asking sommeliers, tell us your favorite American wine. And when I saw American wine, it was after we had talked about doing this interview, and I said, wow, he's going to, someone's going to mention a true American grape like you're doing, and they didn't. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if, if Jerry battles this in the wine world. Like, Kim and I are always trying to promote on this show, you know, exploring the wine world and and going with the little guy, supporting small wineries, get away from big brands. Do you find yourself fighting with people to get the word out about your wines and to, to get people to understand or want to try these wines? Uh, absolutely. And, and that that works on several levels, because even at the fundamental level of getting a distributor to carry these wines means they have to educate all up and down the line. Like every retailer, the retailers have to educate the customers because no one walks into a restaurant and says, give me a Watumka. I mean, they just don't know what it is. So it requires education constantly. And there's also the definition of 
terms. What's American? What's heritage? What's heirloom? So there, well, what can I, I, I can only just agree wholeheartedly that there's a lot of education involved and, uh, and a lot of, um, oh, I don't know, a lot of, um, what do you call it? Stereotypes of, uh, you know, what, a, what an American wine is and what it's all about. And, you know, they assume that it's a lot conquered, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I hope is, as you're talking about, whether you call them heritage grapes or heirloom grapes or whatever, there does seem to be this sort of, we're in this sort of moment where people are interested in those kinds of products, you know, whether it's heirloom tomatoes or beans or whatnot, that maybe now this is a good time for people to start exploring and be open about grape varieties that maybe they've never heard of before and that are Native American grapes can come to the forefront and uh, and start to be a little bit more either available or interesting to people. And they don't just think that they're conquered anymore. Well, uh, I would hope so. I um, <laughs> uh, Saturday Night Live had a skit where um, once where I think the, uh, you know, the, sort of the booby prize was a bottle of Missouri wine. I wrote in a lengthy <laughs> Oh, uh, right. Uh, but they you don't want to be the butt of a joke. (laughs) Well, I mean, really, I think you know we um, we have gotten I think our third best of class from San Francisco Chronicle for the uh, the Norton, which I think you know that means we're getting there somewhere. There was a. in 1873, I, I should mention, the Missouri Norton took the best of best of show at the Vienna World Expo. So uh, that was one of the stories that also led me into this adventure that, um, you know, these grapes are capable of something of quality. And the Lenore is it's really opening up. And, and uh, when we first opened it, Kim and I, I think it was kind of a, I wouldn't say a shock to our palates, but a, maybe a shock to our normal drinking palate. But I got more of a... a- grapiness right after we opened the bottle and we poured samples i you know i almost got that yeah like the grapey fruit uh kind of quality that has gone away and for me is replaced i mean it still has that floral note um i forget what the description that you had on the back of the bottle but you had something something having to do with flowers rose hips was that maybe um but it's it's definitely veering more towards black fruit and spice for me now. Alpine That's, strawberries. Uh, yeah, I get strawberries. Cherry pit is the aroma description on the label. Cherry pits. Oh. Cherry pits. Yeah, because there's there's a little woody element, the, not quite sandalwood, but it's yeah. uh, it's just a, a nice, pleasant. It's not cigar box, but it's uh, yeah. I think that's what I, what in my brain is saying. Spice notes is that sensation. Is this wine in oak, Jerry? Uh, no, there's. Uh, um, I think we use a, 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 a little bit of acacia chips in some of these. Hmm. Gives a little, little woody smoothness, but most of this is just coming out of the grapes. How do the the grapes take to oak? Was that something that was used years ago? A lot. I mean, the oak being used now treatments is way different than in the past. So they must have been used oak past too, correct? With these wines, with these uh, grapes? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, the only evidence is circumstantial. I've been to uh, Stonehill out of, um, so Husband had a winery um, in Herman. So I, I visited that and there, you know, there are some old barrels from the 1800s lying about and they have, uh, you know, on the on the end is the name of the grape. So I, I, I know that he used barrels and had wine in them, but I don't know whether that was, you know, seven-year-old barrels or three three-year-old barrels or, you know, what his program was or, or any of that stuff. Did a lot of that barrel information get lost because they destroyed him in Prohibition and things like that? Yeah, and with Prohibition, or at least
least the stories and the information I hear, it's all sort of fuzzy rumor. And then you track some of the stuff down and it's fact. And sometimes it's not. Prohibition certainly blew Missouri winemaking just out of the water. And I heard that that was because the state legislation required that they get rid of the winemaking equipment, which was not the case in California. So California could rebound quicker afterwards. And uh, in Missouri, by that time, they had replanted to things like Concord and you know, where they were supporting Welch's grape juice and, and stuff like that. So it, it just um, it's just taken decades to recover. That seems to be when I read the history of where we had vineyards planted and wine being made pre-prohibition versus post-prohibition. It does seem like those of us on the eastern part of the country had a much harder time rebounding, building up infrastructure and getting all of the wine programs kind of back in line. And, you know, the West Coast seemed to have a much easier time of it. Yeah. And uh, Clark had a theory that coming out of Prohibition out in the California Central Valley, you could, uh, you know, have acres and acres of uh, grapes and, and basically in a desert environment that doesn't have a lot of pest pressures. And you could yeah. make wheat port for 23 cents a gallon or whatever it was. So it was just a lot more economical out there. How is the disease pressure where you are as far as fungal diseases, mold diseases? Mold disease and fungus is something we, we have to deal with. And as much as possible by keeping the canopy open and all that. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that that's the one thing that we're still really trying to figure out because once you let that missionary infestation occur, you know, you're it's a it's a losing battle. So mm-hmm. we're trying to avoid pesticides uh whenever possible just to get the diversity going out there. We're playing around with as as someone said, biodiversity without the woo-woo stuff. We're not <laughs> we're not following or Amen. You know, I mean, things like the, uh, well, the diversity of the soil, for instance, I mean, one of the things you learn, underneath a vine, you have roots. So the roots are about 15% of what's under there. The other 85% are the mycorrhizones from the fungus, which are basically extracting minerals and exchanging that for carbohydrates. So it's a system. It's not just the plant itself, but it's a whole ecology of stuff that's going on underground. So learning about uh, just maintaining a a healthy and diverse environment is, um, that's the other part of the learning curve. How about climate change, Jerry? in your area is a big impact will affect what you're growing that might have had a different climate when it was grown in the past? Well, as I said earlier, since we're in a red state, we don't have uh, climate change. So, (laughs) however... I will notice that, yeah, I mean, some of our stuff, since we have 40 varieties, uh, you know, thank God they don't all come ripe at the same time. So we can sort of pace out our efforts. But we once started uh, in late August to harvest, and now we're getting first fruit in like late July. Um, Just because it's getting warmer, it's not a straight line curve because photosynthesis and all all of this depends on the variety and the vine and all that, but sort of shut down above 85 degrees. So just if you have more days with hotter temperatures, it's not necessarily that things are happening faster in terms of the plant's processing of uh, of carbohydrates or any of that stuff. And again, that's why we're, like I said, writing the book, we're keeping careful records because some years, some varieties will ripen before others. So it's not even as though we have a sequence nailed down of how to uh, plan for harvesting and processing. Quite the learning curve. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> well, the wine is just opening up beautiful now. I'm really enjoying it, Jerry. Yeah, we, we had a wine ride. Much, much different. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, the Initially, the acidity was almost 
too much, but now I feel like the tannins have come up to meet it and it's it's got a little bit of a better balance now. Also, I'm drinking it out of a better glass, so that could be helping too. It is amazing how much uh, effect the, the glass has on the on the quality yeah. of the experience. I'm drinking it out of a uh, burgundy glass and it really works in this glass. Just another random thing I um, cast. You can't see any of this, but I <laughs> I pulled, um, from the cellar, we have, uh, there's also the, the Lenore that I first discovered out of Kaz Winery, out of uh, Sonoma. So he had uh, two acres of this stuff. There's another bottle here from Fairhaven out of uh, Texas and a bottle from Hervé's uh, Vineyard down in this in from France. And um, Morgan uh, uh, says, Peterson says that the uh, 12% of the Bedrock Vineyard out in California is Lenore because it was once widely planted out there uh, as a as a wine producing uh, grape for the, uh, you know, for the 49ers and, and whatnot, whatever those old Zen vineyards are out there that sometimes some of this stuff is mixed in with it. I had read used to be a a, a a really important grape variety in Texas. Yeah, yeah. In fact, this is we did find some of this out of nursery down there. So this is one of the few of the grapes that we have that uh, we know that there are uh, there are other plantings around the uh, the mm. country. And the alcohol was nine nine percent, or almost nine and a half percent. Is yeah. is that typical of your of your wines? Low alcohol? Low. No, not not all of them are that low, but uh, yeah, nine thirteen uh, percent. That's that's about how it goes. Although mm-hmm. I mean, our, our Norton was up to like fifteen sixteen this year, but um, no, in in the main, they're low alcohol. So I guess. Well, I mean that that is just what they are. It's nice to have that have a, a low alcohol red that is not very sweet. <laughs> you know, the the balance is better than than most other low alcohol reds I've had. Yeah, we think you could chill this a little bit too. We, do you chill it a little bit, Jerry? Give it a little chill. Well, like I said, I can hardly afford to drink my own wine, but so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can chill it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, you may. <laughs> I'm in a chilly room, so my my wine is being chilled as we speak. <laughs> and one of the talks we gave over in Bordeaux was not about the wine itself, but just about getting promoting the idea of exploration. Mm. Um, that's kind of what we're doing, and we would encourage others to just uh, you know try some of this stuff because there there are just surprises there. And I think I don't know, just promoting the uh, the the richness of diversity out there is uh, something that ought to be celebrated. Do you get a lot of educators or psalms? approaching you wanting to learn these uh more and more as we go i mean as you know as the word gets out there because it's it's not like uh you know it's not like we can put up big billboards on the highway or anything like that it's (laughs) requires discovery as we have found it was a big article by uh carrie mcneil said missouri rising that mentioned unique wines uh, using American grape varieties. So I, I brought some recognition and I think that's hopefully more of what we see for you and people uh, will go to your website and explore these unique wines and experience something different. That's always something Kim and I are promoting here on the show. Yeah. To, uh, there's a lot of wine out there and there's people like you are working hard and uh, experimenting. You should be trying more of your wine. So maybe we get some of our listeners to buy some more of it and you can start enjoying it. I'll be standing by the website. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, with our special guest, Jerry Eisterhold. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes and listen to us every week on WFPR 102.9 in Franklin, Massachusetts. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.